0: Welcome to getting in a college coach conversation on this show the team of experts from bright horizons college coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance from building a well balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process enjoy the show
1: afternoon everyone and welcome to getting in a college coach conversation thrilled that you're joining us here as always um and i did want to make a plug as i always do for reviewing us on apple podcasts if you find this show really helpful um it's helpful to us if you could leave us a review so that others can find the show so if you have a few minutes today, and you could do that, that'd be great. All right, we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna cover a few different things today, including um, talking about the pros of working an on-campus job, and I'm also gonna be doing a little brief riff on a listener Q and A. You know, we do these pretty frequently, um, but uh, we're gonna take a slightly different twist with those today. And I'm welcoming a colleague of mine for that. But before we get to that. I'm really excited to talk about small liberal arts colleges. Um, I feel like people are, these are, I, I don't want to say falling out of favor because I certainly talk to plenty of students who have interest in the small liberal arts college, but I feel a little like they might be more and more misunderstood in this day and age. And so I'm particularly thrilled to welcome Dr. Sue Stubner to the show. She's the president of Colby Sawyer College. Uh, here in I was going to say here in New Hampshire, but I'm not in New Hampshire. I'm in Maine, but here in New England. Um, and uh, Sue, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Beth, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we start out for our listeners who maybe are not as familiar? But can you tell a little tell us a little bit about Colby Sawyer?
2: Absolutely, be happy to. So Colby Sawyer is located in New London, New Hampshire. Um, we are in what's called the Lake Sunapee Dartmouth region of the state, um, just about 30 minutes northwest of Concord. Um, we have been around since 1837. Um, for many of our years, we were a two-year junior college for women and then evolved into a four-year institution in the 60s and in the late 80s um, began um, coeducation. Um, we are about a thousand students um, primarily undergraduate focused um, but in the last couple years we have added some graduate programs Um, and we um, have a mix of more pre-professional majors um, but still a very strong um, liberal education core because we think that is really critical for our student success Um, And so our students, you know, are really involved in a lot of different ways. About 40% of our students are involved in athletics, and we are a Division III institution. Um, We also have about 40% of our students are first in their family to attend college. And so graduation day is always a really special day for all families, but especially for our first-gen students, um, just for that amazing accomplishments. Um, And we have a number of clubs and organizations outside of academics that our students get involved in, Um, just in terms of majors, nursing is our highest um, major in terms of number of students. Um, uh, Business, psychology, sports management, and um, I'm forgetting the fifth, but those are kind of our, our top majors here at the college.
1: Right. And and notable for, as you mentioned, it's a strong combination of the pre-professional because most of what you just mentioned are pre-professional in nature, but coupled with the liberal arts. So um, as a former English major or as an English major, I guess I'm not former, (laughs) um, I'm a huge proponent of the liberal arts. I think there's so much value in them. And I don't think we need to lose the liberal arts to exclusively focus on the professional, um, but you know, we would probably need an entire day and five podcasts to really dig into the ins and outs of of all of that. But absolutely, you know, so obviously, you are the president of a small liberal arts college. and um I, I was just curious about what you see as the benefits of small liberal arts colleges, just in general. obviously, you we can also talk a little bit more about Colby Sawyer, the benefits sure. for that. But, you know, as you congregate and meet with other presidents of small liberal arts colleges, what are the things that really stand out to you?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I've really dedicated um, my 30 years in higher education to um, more regional private liberal arts colleges. And um, there's certainly um, liberal arts institutions that kind of run the whole gamut in terms of the ability of students that attend them. But I think one commonality that we all have is that students can really get a personalized education at our institutions Um, they will never be a number in a class Um, the faculty will get to know them individually and can actually help move them on a path um, whether there's internships or some sort of senior project or thesis um, that is really designed specifically to their interests Um, As you just mentioned a moment ago, um, the critical nature of the liberal arts education, um, partnering with whatever you major in, um, at Colby Sawyer, for example, our nurses are BS students rather than BSNs because we think it's so important that they not only get their professional training, but that they're able to communicate and problem solve and anticipate the future changes in their professions. So students from these institutions really get an opportunity um, to not only be ready for that first job, but also to be ready as their career unfolds because they have that liberal education foundation. And then the last thing that comes to mind is I think these institutions are incredibly transformative. Um, Every place that I've been and at the national conferences where I meet with my peers, there is such tremendous growth between the first year and the senior year um, at these institutions. Our students are not only successful in the classroom, because of our size, they they have many leadership opportunities across campus. Um, And again, that personalized education, they just, they grow in amazing ways. And so by the time they get to be seniors and, and commencement know they're ready to take on the world. So um, it's always a privilege to work with these kinds of institutions.
1: The thing that I was thinking as you were talking is places like Colby Sawyer are places where students just aren't going to fall through the cracks, right? And where, you know, you do have the resources because your student population is on the smaller side, you have the ability to say, hey, the professor to say, I noticed you weren't in class this morning because maybe there are only 10 kids in that class versus the 500 person lecture hall where you could easily not show up and literally not one person would know, except maybe your friend who knows that you're back home sleeping because you were out too late the night before or something like that, right? Exactly. And, you know, if you were, um, and, and I love, and I think that 40% first gen is also a really good indicator that this is an environment where students are going to feel comfortable and where parents who maybe are less familiar with what this means to send their child off to college have a real comfort level. So I think for our listeners, you may not be first gen, but you may be saying to yourself, geez, I'm worried that I have a child who might get lost or who might not show up to that lecture at uh, 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. And I love the idea of them being in an environment where people will notice. And, um, you know, that's that's a good feeling. Not all kids are suited to going to a big school where they will be in some ways a number. And that's, right. that can be fine, right? But it's not for every student.
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately you hope that every student finds the best fit for them. And as you say, um, not every student is ready to navigate a really large institution. Um, I have a funny story about the the uh, fact that you mentioned about professors and others um noticing if you're not in class um you know when when winter ends here and the sun comes out in the springtime our students kind of flock to the quad and one of our business professors actually saw one of her students lounging on the quad (laughs) instead of being in her class so she literally opened the window and yelled out his name and said get in class, that's where you're supposed to be. <laughs> and not every professor is that aggressive. But you know, again, it's people know who you are by name. And, um, and, you know, mental health is an extraordinary issue that we're facing yes. in colleges and universities today, we, we may not have the extensive um, professional um, resources that some of the bigger institutions do. But we do have a number of tools and then just the small community, many times the students feel comfortable coming forward or one of their peers feels comfortable coming forward and letting us know um, that they may be having some trouble and we can connect them with the resources that they need.
1: Yeah. I mean, for all that there are schools out there with extensive professional resources, what we certainly are seeing is that those resources are stretched to their limits. Yes. And so while on paper it might look really impressive, the reality is that a really supportive community can be just as valuable, possibly more so than a real huge professional community, um, because we've seen that that can fail. To support students. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a big crisis. Colleges everywhere are doing the best that they can. But um, I do love that point. And it is a great one. You know, Not, not only is not every student ready to go and navigate a large institution, but even if they are ready for it, it may not be the best for them emotionally or, you know, just from that perspective of, going from a place for some students, you're going from high school where maybe everybody knows your name to go to a huge um, college where nobody knows you can be really disconcerting. I know that I actually experienced that. I graduated with 64 students in my high school class and then went on to a pretty big school where there were, um, you know, 20,000 undergrads. And while I was okay. I was you know, fine with advocating for myself. There definitely was that feeling I had from time to time of just nobody knows me here, and everybody knew me where I was. and so that's another student that I often think about when I think about small liberal arts colleges is you know, someone who really values their place in their current community and would like to establish something similar when they head off to college.
2: yeah, I completely agree. and I think. You know, students at smaller institutions really have an opportunity to make an impact. You know, I think actually everyone across our community, whether, you know, you're on the facilities team to our faculty, to even, you know, our administrators, um, but especially our students as well, they can actually make really significant change um, in the college community. So if there isn't a club that's offered, you know, they can very easily, you know, gather a few friends and create one. Um, Again, they can hold so many different leadership opportunities, which just help complement what they're learning in the classroom. Um, And so I think it is a really wonderful atmosphere for for a number of students. Um, Some of our students, you know, might have been overshadowed by an older sibling. Um, Some went to really large institutions at high schools where, you know, they just maybe couldn't get into that leadership opportunity that they wanted. Um, and then I mentioned the first generation students who, it, this is an entirely new landscape for them. And so that supportive environment from all the faculty and, and the entire community really matters.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point, right? The flip side of that, where you coming from a place where maybe very few people know you and being able to make your mark when you end up in a smaller, smaller college, I, I love that point. Um, We would be remiss if we didn't talk about what is always the elephant in the room when it comes to college and that is cost. And I do think that the perception is that small liberal arts colleges, private colleges tend to be really expensive. And so I think many families write them off without ever taking a look. Um, Colby Sawyer has a really cool transparent tuition program. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. And then just also about your thoughts on the cost of small liberal arts colleges in general.
2: Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, Beth. I think, um, you know, a lot of families are um, dismissing private institutions solely based on the sticker price. Um, In fact, Sally May last year came out with a really comprehensive study that indicated that 80% of families and prospective students dismiss private institutions, again, solely based on their listed price and don't go to the website, don't explore financial aid, um, you know, and, and so that's a really big segment of prospective students that we're not in conversation with or many schools are not in conversation with. What many families don't know is that there is substantial merit and need-based financial aid at these institutions. And unfortunately, it's become, its game is not the right word, but it's a model that's very confusing for families. We have these very high listed prices and the actual amount a family will pay is significantly less because there's very large merit scholarships and then also need-based financial aid as well. And so based on um, the Sally May study and our concern about reaching students, especially with fewer number of high school students in New England in the next 10 years, um, and also just, you know, being concerned about kind of this gamemanship around high price um, and, and high discount, um, this past year we did do what's called a tuition reset where we lowered our our tuition price from forty-six thousand dollars to seven seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. Wow. Um so this, the the scholarship that students receive has gone down from about thirty thousand to you know about eight thousand Um, But we want students and families to know right from the beginning that they're going to pay less. And, that you know, again, because we have such a large first generation population that may not know what questions to ask. Yeah. um, We want them to know it's affordable to come to Colby Sawyer and, you know, very comparable to many of the public institutions in our state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a great price and it's nice to know it up front. Um, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about exactly that and looking into merit options and not looking at the sticker price and digging in and doing you know the um, the calculators on the different schools' yeah. websites and things like that. But if you're not listening to this podcast and you don't get a ton of support in your high school, or maybe there is a lot of info, but it's tough for you to piece through it all, the easy thing is to just say, well, you can always just go to UMass Boston, or you can yep. go to UMass Dartmouth, or you can go to, you know, UMass, the the flagship in Amherst, right? Um, yes. And not looking any further, um, same with New Hampshire, you've got a great uh, state institution, but it's a, it's bigger. And, you know, it's not going to be for every student. So I love that you guys have done this. I, of course, would love it if more colleges would do that. I would tell you that my uh, the finance experts on my staff would also love it, even though it might <laughs> threaten their the need for what they do. Um, anything that makes things more transparent is is great and helpful to everyone. So,
2: Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you joining the the call today or the podcast today. Sue, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of a twist on our listener Q&A. So don't go away.
0: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
3: In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice schools. Visit GetIntoCollege.com slash experts to learn more.
0: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
3: For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. So I promised before the break that we were going to do the listener Q&A, but a little bit of a twist on the listener Q&A, and very excited to welcome my colleague, uh, Steve Fernandez-Brennan, who also happens to be a former AO at Occidental, at Marquette, at Loyola University Chicago, and Regis. So he's bringing a huge wealth of knowledge to the pod today. Welcome, Steve.
4: Thanks so much, Beth. Great to be here.
1: Absolutely. Very excited to have you join, and to our listeners who might have been expecting a segment on Colleges for Students on the Autism Spectrum, my colleague who was meant to join me is not feeling well, so we are going to postpone that. Steve is stepping in literally at the last minute to um, fill in for her, so we're going to have some fun with this, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, all right, so we get a lot of listener questions, um, very legitimate questions, and um we're going to look and talk about those and, and talk about the answers today, but there was some things that struck me about this particular batch of questions, and that was the whole kind of like blanket statement nature of what to do or not to do, and then also the panic that can set in when you're listening to what other people are doing or telling you that they're doing and things like that. So. Um, I thought we could kind of tackle that alongside the actual answers to some of these questions. So, um, we got this question, uh, through Facebook from Joe who asks, um, says he has a question on reporting AP scores. My son has taken nine classes and uh, presumably nine AP classes and nine exams. Um, he has four fives, three fours and two threes. (laughs) Good. So, right. Which is great. Right. Um, yeah. And I just, I I feel the need to throw out there that taking nine AP classes and nine AP exams is not necessarily a expectation for students. Uh, And just because Joe's child has done this doesn't mean, or Joe's son has done this, doesn't mean that your son or daughter need to do this. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Um, But Joe's actual question is, do we report the threes on applications for top 50 schools? So, Steve, what's your initial gut reaction to that?
4: My initial gut reaction is it depends, Beth, like so much of this, right? So, um, generally speaking, we say that fours and fives, you want to report those. Those are great scores. You want to report those to every school. Threes, uh, maybe not. I will say that the University of California system, you should report all scores, all AP scores, even if the student doesn't pass the AP exam because they will look to see if there's a score, if the student has taken an AP course. Other colleges and universities don't do that. They don't say, hey, I see the student took AP US history. I don't see a score. Where is it? They're busy. They have hundreds of these to read. They're not digging through looking for missing information. They're just looking at the information in front of them. So always report fours and fives, report threes. Definitely for the UCs. For other colleges and universities, maybe not. If you're applying for highly, highly selective colleges and universities, the threes are not going to help. And why submit information that doesn't put you in the best possible light?
1: And, and I think what I would further yes to everything you just said, um, and what I would further add to that is um, the piece of the question that kind of had me like, Ugh, is the top 50, right? Top 50 where? Top 50 who? Who's saying what's top 50, what's not top 50? And I believe, you know, Joe, not to pick on you, but I think what you're probably talking about is top 50 for US News and World Report, which, you know, again, I'm just gonna take a deep breath and remind everyone that this is a list compiled to sell advertising on a website and it was created to sell magazines. This is nobody's idea of um, the cut and dried, these are the best schools. Much more important than saying just a blanket statement for anything, but also for like the top 50 is look at the list of schools your child is applying to. Do they accept threes as credit? Will you get credit if you earn a three? If so, report that three. If not, then leave it off. Right. And at the um, at the most selective level, I would agree with you. Threes are not helping. I see no need why you would need to report the threes, but I would always report the fours and fives. So.
4: I love how both of us took a deep breath when we talked about the top 50 in the rankings, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. I just, yeah. you know, again, top 50 for who I would, if, if, if our listeners take nothing away from this, I really, really wish you would all take away that like the U.S. News and World Report is utterly useless, should not be, you should develop your own criteria for what's important in a college and then find the colleges that fit that criteria and rise to the top. Okay. Okay. Next question. Um, Should my son have taken the SAT or ACT in 10th grade? All his friends did, Steve. What do you think?
4: Comparison is the thief of joy, right? It
1: is. Oh, my gosh. My husband and I were just talking about that yesterday.
4: Yeah. So, um, no. And some colleges... Is it true Beth do you remember that Carnegie Mellon doesn't accept 10th grade SAT or ACTs right correct yes and so no there's no need to take it in 10th grade it doesn't matter what all your friends and neighbors are doing Um, I could guess based on this question the geography is probably a couple of spots in the U.S. right the bay area um, New York New Jersey tri-state area um, where there's so much pressure around this and I feel for families because the process is opaque. It's not transparent. And you hear, quote unquote, we heard that, right? Yeah, yeah. And my neighbor's babysitter's cousin got into Brown because she took the SAT in 10th grade. No, that's not what happened.
1: Nope, yep.
4: And we conflate causality with correlation. There's all kinds of things going on baked into this question, right? Yes, yes, Um, totally. But Also,
1: we're behind, right? We're, we're <laughs> like behind. Everyone else is, is ahead of behind. us. Yes. Right? Yeah, We're
4: not in the right spot, the right spot of this process. Every child is different. And at, at Bright Horizons College Coach, we always start with, who's your child? yeah, And what are their needs? And what does their process look like? And based on that, for some students, is it appropriate to take the SAT in 10th grade? Maybe. I think that student would be an outlier.
3: Yeah, I don't uh, see totally.
4: it. Yeah. I don't see any real benefit. Colleges don't give you points for doing things early. And so many times we, we collectively, and again, not to pick on this person, but we collectively push our students to do things before they're ready. And depending on their course content, it might be a terrible idea. Yeah. To take an SAT or ACT in 10th grade. And the student's not ready in terms of maturity. The student's not ready in terms of course selection. And they're just, it's just a bad idea. Yeah. And so no. Yeah. Short answer, short answer.
1: Short answer is absolutely no. Totally agree. Um, I always tell families that the SAT and ACT are designed for second semester juniors. You know, I don't know if your are all of your child's friends are athletes. That's sometimes you see athletes taking a little earlier because the coaches are going to be asking for it. But Even then, that doesn't always go so hot. well, because to your point, maybe they haven't had all the math that's going to be asked on those tests yet. Um, So I work with very few students, and many of the students I work with are applying to the most selective schools. Very few of them take the SAT or the ACT before the second half of their junior year, and almost – I'm having to rack my brain to think about any other than a couple of recruited athletes who took it in 10th grade, truthfully. So
4: yeah, same.
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. We have spoken. The answer is no, he should not have taken it. All right. This next question comes to us from Alexandra who is hearing through the parent grapevine that it's good to continue with foreign language. My son will be in Spanish four as a junior. Can he stop taking it after that?
4: Oh, the world language question. (laughs) Um, So. Generally speaking, the gold standard is having four years of the five core subject, the core content areas, right? English, Mm -hmm. math, science, social studies and in this case, Spanish, world language, whichever whichever language other than English the student's taking. If a student has Spanish for and they're substituting something in senior year for that slot. They're doubling up on math, they're doubling up on science. My niece was in this exact situation. I told her she had to take Spanish every year. She got through Spanish four in 11th grade. And she said, please, can I not take Spanish five? I don't wanna take AP Spanish. That's the only course offered at my school. I'm going into STEM. My All my target schools require four years of world Fine, great, okay. Right. There can be lots of reasons, but there's no one size fits all for this. Right. If a student is looking at a major where when they get to college, they need to take at least a year of world language, stepping away from Spanish, can you do it? Yes, four years is appropriate. Four years is great preparation for all colleges and universities. They want to see, you know, three or four years of of that world language, but it might be that if you take it as a senior. And then you take that placement exam, Beth, that you don't have to don't have to don't get to don't get to don't get to. You won't you won't need to take Spanish because you placed out of it. Whereas if you step away from Spanish as a senior, the reality is, unless you're in a space where you're speaking it all the time, you're going to lose it. And when you take that placement exam, you're either going to start over with French or Tagalog or uh, some other language. Right. right? You're going to need to take a different world language. Um, Or start over with your Spanish. So it's a really, really nuanced question.
1: Yeah. And I I think that, again, we don't want to solely focus on the most selective schools because there are so many more out there. But at that level, too, if you're looking to apply to an Ivy or a Stanford, um, the reality is you're going to be up against students who did stick with the foreign language all the way through senior year, took it at the highest level available at the high school Um, And some will even go farther than that. So, you know, do you have, excuse me, do you absolutely have to do it? No, you don't. But I, I, you know, could it be beneficial depending on the colleges you're sticking, you're shooting for? Yes, it could be. So again, it depends and there's no
4: size fits all. And the major too, right? If a student is engineering and they'll never have to take, get to take a world language again, then that's a that's a little bit of a different conversation. If the student is looking at Georgetown or Occidental or a place that's really you know focused in on international and they want international relations, absolutely take the fifth year of Spanish. Yes. Um, and and so it's not just the the most selective schools, but it's also I'd love to know more and 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 learn what the students considering majoring in. Exactly.
1: And I think another point: what if does your student want to go abroad? in at some point while they're in college. Having just been, um, I on a, accompanied my husband on a business trip to Spain. I was actually pretty surprised by the level of like where we were going and not a ton of English being spoken. You know, we kind of become accustomed everywhere you go, everybody speaks English. Well, where I was, I was shockingly drawing on that year and a half of Spanish that I took by, back in, in high school. Um, French was my language, but I took a little bit of Spanish as well, and uh, uh, I needed it. And I was really happy that I had it. So you know, citizen of the world, future travel, study abroad. There's some other reasons to stick with it. But yep. we don't have two hours, so we'll <laughs> we'll move on to the next
4: one. Exactly.
1: Um, all right, this one is an interesting question that I. That I'm, I'm not entirely, I think I know where it stems from, um, but not entirely clear. Um, but it seems to come up a little bit more frequently lately. And that is, does applying in August improve my chances of admission?
4: It's interesting. And having done this for a while, it's interesting seeing the questions cycle through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is nothing we got five years ago. No, never, absolutely. never heard this question, right? And I think there's so much pressure, and people are trying to move. Um, uh, the calendar is just simply there's calendar creep here. Right. Um, the answer, as always, Beth, is it depends. Yes. Um, for colleges that do rolling admission, that is to say, first come, first serve admission, applying earlier within the admission window can increase your chances, and it's just a good thing to do, just to get that application out the door. And to find out earlier in the process, yes, I've been accepted to University of Arizona. Great. Takes the pressure off. I'm going to college somewhere. Right. If that's a school that you're particularly excited about, um, as an example of a rolling admission, it's it's great to find that out. Um, For colleges that do pool admission, that is to say they have a deadline of November 1st, say. Right. And they choose from the pool who they're taking whether you apply on October 30th or whether you apply on August 1st, when the application opens is immaterial. Right. And so it depends on the school.
1: And I think the other thing that is really important, and I know we have a lot of counselors who listen, school counselors who listen to the podcast is that um, unless you're already back in school in August, your school counselor is uh, almost definitely not going to be working with you in terms of, the school's pieces are not going to land in August. And that is generally, by the way, fine, right? You Mm -hmm. could send in your part of the application if you feel really strongly that you want to get it in. And then the transcript and the school materials can follow after the fact. Um, For those of you who are not about to enter your senior year, I would suggest this is a conversation you have with your school counselor before the end of your junior year, you know, what is the school's timeline? What is the earliest that the school is gonna be sending out their materials? Because just because the colleges may have said, oh, our application is open, doesn't mean that the schools are ready with their pieces. And by the way, that's fine. The colleges do understand this. I know that there, is, and the names of the schools are not coming to mind right now, but there are a handful of schools out there where, um, when you actually submit your application like the date it comes in can impact your options for housing this is very few colleges do this they will tell you that they do it so you can go and find that out if they don't say they do it then they're not doing it i'm gonna make a blanket statement and say if the college is not telling you they're doing this they're not doing this Um, but i believe even in that situation your application, your pieces, the earlier they get in, are what matter. When the school stuff comes in, it gets matched up with yours. The school does not need to hit that early deadline. The high school. The high school, exactly. Sorry. The high school does not need to meet that early deadline. So, Um, For those of you who are listening to this and about to fire off an email to your school counselor to say, I need to get my application in tomorrow, you need to be prepared that you can get your part in, but the school's pieces are going to come later, and um, you have to respect that the school has a process, and they have worked with thousands upon thousands of students who've gotten into college and Believe me, yours is not the unique situation that I know it, this works for everybody, but for me, it needs to go in differently. Right. I, I'm right. feeling for the school counselors out there. right Absolutely.
4: Now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think August is a little, um, I I, I can think of no school where you must get your application in by August, quite honestly. I even like mid-September might be the earliest that I might have a student getting something in. But with rolling admissions in general, I find that so long as it's in by like mid-October, even by the end of November, you're probably fine. I don't know. You see anything differently, Steve?
4: No, I agree with that. Yeah. But I do think as far as process management goes, just get it out the door.
1: Yeah, right. for sure. And do the yep. best job that you can. That's I, it too. Right? You want to make yeah. sure that when you're pressing submit, you only get to submit your application once and you can't recall it and say, oh, sorry, I wrote a new essay and it's better. Or I just realized that I sent you something that's kind of half-assed because I was so focused on getting it out the door in August. And now I want to, here's my more thoughtful application, right? You right. got to balance right.
4: it. So that's it. Yep.
1: Anything else to add, Steve, before we uh, wrap up our segment today?
4: Just, folks, take a deep breath and don't worry about the neighbor's babysitter. Yes. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Just, it starts with your child. It starts with their process. And if you have questions, certainly reach out. I mean, that's why we're here. And, and thanks, for, thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to throw the caveat out there that as soon as I said, yes, I agree with you that Carnegie Mellon doesn't look at scores from 10th grade, I was like, wait, is it 10th or is it 9th? So we're just going to go on record as saying that it's ninth or tenth, not positive. Perfect. I will. Uh, we could post something uh, after this segment. I'm going to go look it up, but I, I I can't do that and talk to you at the same time. But um, I know that there are, that Carnegie Mellon stands out as a school that doesn't take scores that are done too early. So, Correct. Right. Anyway. All right. Perfect. See, thanks again for jumping in at the last minute. You're a trooper, my pleasure. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks Anytime. Again. Beth. All right. Sounds good. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the perks of on-campus jobs. So don't go away.
0: A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN.
3: In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more.
0: Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
3: For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com experts to learn more.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to our third and final segment of today's Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Uh, I'm excited to welcome my colleague and former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University, Alex Bickford, to the show. Hi, Alex.
5: Hi, Beth. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. Uh, How's your summer?
5: Good so far? Great. All right. That's
1: good. Busy is good. You and I are here in the wilds of New England, and we have to get out and enjoy the nice weather while we have it.
5: Yeah, finally. Some nice
1: weather exactly exactly a lot of rain um all right well so today we are talking about the perks of on-campus jobs um we've done a bunch of segments on financial aid borrowing money working um, while you're in school. And I, this one particularly, we're gonna focus on those jobs that are right there on campus. And my first question for you is, when I hear the term on-campus jobs, I, I often think work-study. Um, sure. But in your mind, is are we talking exclusively work-study or are there other options to work on campus?
5: Yeah, so not necessarily just work-study. On campus, so there are several departments on campus that will hire students who are not specifically work-study students. So work study students typically have a level of financial need uh, determined by the federal financial aid form, the FAFSA, uh, and the university will award a certain dollar amount of uh, work study dollars uh, that the student earns kind of like an hourly rate uh, over the course of the year. So you may make up to that, but you may make less than that. Uh, But there are oftentimes that students actually might have a low amount of work study or no eligibility for work study. Uh, but still want to work on campus. Uh, so there will be departments that will hire campus payroll students or convert work-study students who have maximized their work-study earnings for the year into campus payroll students.
1: And actually, that's an interesting uh, comment that you just made. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, clearly there are differences between a work-study student yeah. and a campus payroll Tell me a little bit more about that, like maxing out. Does that mean there's a limit to how much you can earn, actually?
5: There there oftentimes is a limit to how much you can earn. It might be $1,000, it might be Mm -hmm. $3,000. Some of it will depend on uh, your eligibility uh, for work study. Uh, So if you do max out and you still have some time left in the semester and your department wants to keep you on, uh, they oftentimes will have in their budgets money set aside for hiring student workers. The benefit that departments have of work-study students is they're paying half of the hourly rate. Oh,
1: yeah.
5: And the federal government is paying half of the hourly rate. So they get twice as much work-study students, essentially, yeah. uh, as they would a campus payroll student. But for somebody who's you know, certainly demonstrated uh, that they have a good work uh, kind of ethic. Yep they'll oftentimes convert them to on-campus payroll which will it's a simple sort of process if they have the money in the budget
1: right it's the key being having the money in the budget right Right. um and so i think the bottom line message here is that it's if you don't have work study that doesn't mean you can't work on campus and i think that's that's important um, absolutely
5: right the library uh, certainly, the dining hall, athletic facilities are oftentimes, tutoring facilities are oftentimes looking for students, regardless of right. whether it's work study or campus payroll.
1: I mean, there are truly, you name it, and there's a job on campus. And I know this because my son's job on campus last year, not a work study job, was loading the trucks that go around and load the vending machines on campus. Who knew that was a job?
5: Who knew? You would have thought that would have been an outside vendor. <laughs> uh,
1: you would think, but apparently it's not. It's run by the university and uh, he, yeah, he goes to the place where they load the trucks and he loves it because he's into working out and stuff like that. So he lifts heavy things and.
5: Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Great.
1: It's awesome for him. So, yeah. So truly you could do many, many different things. What do you think about? Um, I think it's probably pretty clear based on what I just said of my own son working is, um, nice. you know, uh, A lot of parents feel strongly that they would like their students to just focus on academics. Um, But what do you think about impact of having an on-campus job on a student's academic outcome?
5: Sure. It was certainly heavily dependent on the student. I'll cast kind of a general net here Mm -hmm. that the studies show that students who work up to 15 hours a week uh, on campus through either work study or campus payroll actually have better Uh, academic outcomes on average. Higher GPAs, uh, better uh, retention rates, so more connection with the school, more likely to stay and re-enroll in future years, Uh, better time management skills, more likely to graduate on time. So those are some of the just academic benefits that come with on-campus work.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think this is uh, an idea, too, that's in some cases kind of carrying over from high school, you know, where parents felt, feel like. I mean, it feels sometimes like so few teenagers these days work. I don't actually believe that's true. I think there are probably right. plenty of teenagers out there working. However, many, many, many parents are saying your job is school. Right. And that's it. And I actually think that can be a negative Um Again, personal bias here. I, I um, My son worked in while he was in high school, and he works while he's in college. I worked when I was in college. I only worked summers when I was in high school. Um, my personal experience was that I was, um, you know, busy. And therefore, I had to, like, do this Budget project. your time. I had right. to budget my time. The, the biggest transition challenge that many students have when they go off to college is Instead of having their whole week completely scheduled for them, right? So they have, class, they have to be in school like seven, eight o'clock. They're there until two, three, four o'clock. Then they have after-school activities. You get to college, and if you're not playing a sport, what do you have? Like f- five classes, maybe that actually meet. Over the course of a week and then the rest of the time is yours to do with as you please and that is not always a great thing
5: and i always like the line and i think it works in science as well as in human life is that things that, that stay in action tend to stay in things in action tend to stay in action yes you get into your dorm room and you sit there and you're binging a show or you're hanging out with friends it's sometimes difficult to say I'm going to get up and I'm going to start doing my homework or I'm going to study or I'm going to do that project that I need right? to do whereas if you go and then you go to your on campus job and then you go home and get dinner and then you do your work it's sort of it's a little bit more regimented and you'll certainly have plenty at 15 hours a week you'll certainly have plenty of time to hang out with friends and, yes. and do some of that stuff especially because your job is right where you know right here
1: Right. Exactly. But one thing that you just said, too, um, made me think, right? You could go back to your dorm and you can binge watch a show. Maybe you're hanging out with friends. Maybe you haven't made many friends yet, right? That's something that we hear a lot about is students just sitting in their rooms. They're on their phones. They're on social media. They're not out meeting people. A job requires you to leave your room and introduces you to people that you wouldn't have met.
5: Right? It does. In And I think that, and speaking from personal experience, when I had work study or campus payroll jobs, and I had both, and I had a lot of jobs, I was working two or three jobs typically on campus. Uh, it had a lot of other adults that cared about your outcome. I always said I worked in financial aid, n- no surprise there, but right. I had five moms that <laughs> yeah. cared about you know how I was doing. Was I getting to class on time? Was I eating okay? And sort of little things like that, that you don't necessarily get if you're working off campus maybe, or if you're not working at all. Right. And then the interaction you have with students who are coming in and out of that Uh, area or students you're working with or even just walking to a different area of campus and seeing a different face Mm -hmm. uh, gives you the opportunity to meet people that you otherwise certainly wouldn't have.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, some students get really lucky and they their roommate becomes their best friend. You know, other students not so much. They 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 and their, their roommate, they don't get along or they're just really different people. Maybe they haven't found anyone on their right. dorm floor. Um, you know, it gets you on a different schedule. It gets you out of your room. I mean, I, I don't think we could overstress the value of having a part-time job and it doesn't even have to be 15 hours. Maybe it's a, you know, one day a week thing for five sure. hours. There are all different types of jobs on campus. So, um yeah i i I think it's very beneficial and 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 I do particularly like the on campus piece of it. One of the challenges I think with an off campus job is if you don't have transportation, it sure. can make it difficult right to get there, whereas on campus theoretically should make it easier. I know there are big campuses where it might be hard to get from one part to another, but usually right. there's a system to get you there. There's a bus you can hop on or something.
5: And something else that I'll say just about working off campus, maybe two things. One would be your off-campus job, if you're working at a restaurant as a server or whatever, they don't care if you have winter break. Yeah. Uh, they may not care uh, that you're leaving for the summer. Uh, that job may not be there for you when you come back. Uh, whereas your on-campus payroll job or your work-study job oftentimes will be there for you when you come back if you want it again. Right so that would be one thing and then the other piece would be the security of an on-campus job you're not worried about coming back late at night and finding a parking spot that's probably far from your your dorm room and having to navigate your way back you're not right. worried about just like you said the driving aspect of it uh if you're on campus there are ways to get back and forth even if it is a large campus uh from a completely the other side so there's a security i think aspect of it too
1: right right And really quickly, because you have a really great personal story about an on-campus job, um, I want to point out that on-campus jobs can lead to larger careers, right? So case in point, Alex. How did you?
5: Yeah, so I I had, I think I worked in the Athletic Center. I worked as a tutor. I worked as an RA. I worked in admissions. I worked in residence hall. uh, But I also, uh, one summer, decided to stay on campus and I got hired to do filing in the work study as a work study position in financial aid. And they soon, soon learned that either I didn't have the mental focus to file or I didn't know the alphabet. I'm not sure exactly what the problem was there, but filing was not my gig. Uh, so I was answering phones. And I happened to know a little bit about financial aid because my father did not do the forms. I did the forms and sort of had a, a history with the financial aid office. I needed to call them often. So I was able to answer some basic questions, uh, which led to them saying, hey, do you want to stay on and get your graduate degree and work for us? And hey, do you want to come on full time with us and work as a professional? And so I certainly wouldn't be here uh, if I didn't work as, in a work-study job. Right, right. And that's true with 90% of, I think, financial aid people. <laughs> uh, and probably the same with 90% of uh, admissions folks. I think, yeah, it was not my path to admissions, but
1: certainly a very popular path is student tour guide. Then you get a job as maybe a student worker in the admissions office, and then you actually get hired. There are many, many admissions offices hire recent sure. grads to um, to do that work. It's it's a perfect fit. You know, you're young, you want to travel. Okay. Right. You know, you're excited about your alma mater. Um, so, yeah, absolutely that. Um, I can think of other students. Um, I could think of a st- someone, that, uh, a personal friend of mine who had a work study position in a research lab um got in had developed an interest in the research that they were doing um and it kind of dovetailed with her major so then switched into a research position and ended up going to graduate school she got to know the professor so well they were huge supporters of hers but it started out as a work-study role not just stepping right. right in to doing research um so
5: yeah and it's not always jobs within higher education i think this this could, could have been a case in point where this she could have easily transitioned out into the medical world yes. or into the science world outside of that. So these, these skills that you're learning definitely are resume builders and carryovers uh, into your professional life, be it in education or outside of education.
1: Right, right. I think we need to get away from the idea that the only valuable experience is an internship, which is a word everybody loves to toss around these days, or that somehow a professional experience is less than, I mean, because it was just a work-study position or you just worked in the dining hall. Um mm-hmm. As I've said many times about some of the jobs I had before I launched my professional career, uh, I learned a lot about what I didn't want in a in a job, sure. you know,
5: and that's valuable too, right? And it's also just building that work ethic and in in working and in having a purpose, and that purpose may not be your, your purpose in life, but it sort of helps keep you going. And then, as you said, finding that next thing that is your your purpose.
1: That is exciting. Yes. On that note, Alex, thank you as always for joining the show. We always have nice conversations and I appreciate it. It's good seeing you. Absolutely. All right. Um, Well, next week we are, so uh, thanks to all my guests who joined today, next week I'm going to be back hosting. Um, We're going to be doing two segments on the research university. So today we talked about the Small Liberal Arts College, Next week, we're going to be covering the Research University. Um, we're also going to be talking, we're going to do another in our um, in our segments or our series on personal finance. And we're going to be talking about competing financial priorities for students and parents through high school and college. So I think that's going to be a really interesting one. I'm excited to learn more. Um, don't forget, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for us, to, others to find us. If you listen to the questions we were answering today and thought, I have questions, I would love to hear them answered on the podcast, you can send them to us at Facebook. You can send them to us on Instagram at College Coach BH. Um, you can email them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So it's all one word, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, And check out our blog, blog blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.